Welcome to the Alabama Literacy Network's podcast, which is designed to share information and best practices for literacy in the state of Alabama. We hope to bring a wide variety of resources together to help school leaders, teachers, and parents so that all children read at high levels. We believe that literacy is a fundamental right that is tied to so many positive outcomes that we want for the citizens of Alabama. This podcast was brought to you by Bright Spot Ed LLC, an educational consulting company based in Alabama, providing consulting, professional learning, evaluation services, and resources. Our goal is to highlight the good and replicate it across education. Check us out at brightspoted.com. I'm your host, Shelly Bell Smith. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Katie Pace-Miles. She is an assistant professor in early childhood education at Brooklyn College City University of New York. Dr. Miles' research interests include orthographic facilitation and mapping, high-frequency word learning, literacy assessment of students with special needs, and literacy instruction for young children that is both developmentally appropriate and grounded in the science of reading. She works closely with New York City's Department of Education to support literacy initiatives that impact the city's most underserved students. Dr. Miles proudly serves as the academic advisor for Reading Rescue, a professional development program, and an evidence-based literacy intervention provided to first grade students across New York City. She is also the creator of Reading Ready, an explicit and systematic word reading curriculum for kindergarten and first grade students. In addition, Dr. Miles supports the alignment of other early literacy programs with the field of reading science in an effort to close the research to practice divide. Welcome, Dr. Miles. Thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me, Shelley. It's an honor to be here. Well, I'm so excited because I cannot wait to hear what you have to say on a topic that's really been consuming some of my brain power, but I want you to start maybe by telling us how you became involved in literacy. Sure. I was trained as an elementary school teacher. I was trained actually in a second grade classroom over two years. It was more of an apprenticeship model that I went through, which was wonderful. I then taught kindergarten and third grade, and I became, I would say, obsessed with how children, some children were able to acquire the ability to read easily and other children uh, were having quite a difficult time and it had nothing to do with their intelligence. From there, started seeking out the field of cognitive psychology because I found some research while I was working on my master's in educational psychology. I found some research that was giving me more answers than what I was finding actually in the field of education. And uh, from there, I was able to work um, for my PhD with Dr. Linnea Airy, whose theories I think we'll talk about today. I was very, very fortunate to receive a fellowship to work with her. And that's how I wound up being able to conduct research on literacy. Wow. And of course, she is one of the premier names in literacy. And if you have read much of anything, it references her work. And so that in itself is so impressive. How I really came to seek you out was that I had the parent of a dyslexic student contact me about the stress of learning, quote, sight words. And so this is a practice that you've done a lot of research on. What can you tell us about the instructional role of these high-frequency words and why it matters how we teach them to students? Sure. So there's a lot I can talk about from my research, but for that parent, for that child, 
I would say something along the lines of hilariously, I don't care about sight words. So I, I conduct a lot, through all of this research and all this time that I've dedicated, I'm, I foresee that I'm going to be doing a lot more research on what I'm going to refer to as high frequency words instead of sight words. More and more, my takeaway from it is I don't care how many high frequency words a student knows at the end of the year. And I don't know why, as a field of education, we've become so obsessed with the number of words students know and why this is a benchmark for us. From the research, I can tell you what I've been investigating is the amount of foundational skills that emergent readers bring into the exercise of learning high-frequency words matters. The orthographic regularity of the words on these high-frequency word lists matters. Uh, Whether the words that you are learning are content versus function words matters. And then whether you are learning these high-frequency words in context versus in isolation matters. So while I say I don't care about high-frequency high words, I do care a lot if we're, if we're going to spend students' time learning high-frequency words, I think we need to understand it as a field that this is complex, and it is certainly not as simple as taking words off of these lists and putting them on flashcards. That's what has come through in in my work. Well, that is possibly groundbreaking news to a lot of people. And so I guess the next question would be, if you could change our practice around these high frequency words, what are some things that we should stop doing and start doing? The number one thing I would change would be our mindset around the words. I would say that we have to think of high frequency words as a special case of words. High-frequency words are words that are used a lot in print and in speech, but they are not some protected case of words where you need to do something differently than what you would do if you were trying to read CVC words or CCVC words. And for anyone who's um, not used to that education language, those, those are consonant, vowel, consonant, or consonant, consonant, vowel, consonant words. And we have approaches that we use in early literacy to learn those types of words. We put them into curriculum where we're doing word reading, word attack skills. These high frequency words should be treated the exact same way. We just have to put more thought work into what words can be put through a word attack approach in kindergarten versus first grade versus second grade. And in my analysis of these lists of words, you can certainly consider categorizing these words into three different buckets, words that are regularly spelled for a kindergartner at that moment in time with regards to the amount of uh, foundational skill knowledge they have, words that are temporarily irregularly spelled, which means they are decodable words. They're certainly decodable. The student just doesn't know that digraph or vowel pattern yet, but that doesn't mean you should throw it into this is a crazy word category. And then you always are going to have permanently irregularly spelled words. But again, in my research with Devin Kearns from UConn, we found that it's a very small percentage. And this aligns with findings from other researchers that shows that the English language is more regular than often perceived. What we found on these lists of 419 high frequency lists, the Dolce and the Fry, only about 16% were permanently irregularly spelled. So there's lots, the overwhelming majority of words on these lists can be decoded. And so we as educators need to resist the urge to just start having students memorize these words based on their frequency. 
It may be what we need to change is the books that we're putting in front of these students, making sure that the words in these books have words that they can read based on their foundational skills at that time. That is a drastic difference than what we see in a lot of classrooms. Right. What I see in a lot of early childhood classrooms, kindergarten, first and second, is that we are putting books in front of children that are full of high frequency words, regardless of their orthographic regularity, lots of function words. And we seem to do word attack skills separate from what we're doing with those books. We, we have curriculum that are word foundational word reading curriculum, and then we do things with leveled books and they're not matching up the way they should be. And we're creating quite a lot of frustration for students and for parents. And it's quite discouraging when you are put in front of a book where you can't read the majority of those words and you're just told to memorize those words, but you might be learning skills in a different part of your curriculum where you're actually told how to break down words. So then the child is confused. Should I be breaking down this word? When I say break down, I mean decode. Should I be using my decoding skills or should I just be sitting there staring at the word, trying to retrieve it from memory, even though it's not securely stored in memory yet? I'm just really trying to think through the implications for teachers, and they're actually pretty vast compared to what we might often be doing. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about orthography, because number one, that's a big buzzword right now. People are talking about orthographic mapping, and people might be familiar with that word orthography and even orthographic mapping. Why do you think people need to know about these concepts of orthography and orthographic facilitation, orthographic mapping, and how would they use that knowledge in a classroom when they're working with students? So I always like to think of whenever I talk to educators, I think about when I first started working with Linnea Airy. And when I was learning about her theory of orthographic mapping, which is actually what drew me to her and why I feel so fortunate I was able to work with her, her theory um, has become and was while I was in my coursework with her, my North Star. I thought of everything through this lens of orthographic mapping because orthographic mapping is the most substantiated theory of how words are stored in memory. It's based on decades of research. As educators, we just didn't know about it though because it was living in the realm of psychology. So to no one's fault in the field of education, it's just that it didn't cross over into the bridge from psychology into education. So this orthographic mapping refers to the process of connecting letters and the spellings of words to sounds in their pronunciations. And it's applied when words are read and when they're spelled. So this connection forming process secures the spelling of the word in memory and enables students to read words by sight and to spell words from memory. When I think about being a practitioner, as I was, when I consider the theory of orthographic mapping and I look at what I'm about to do instructionally, I'm constantly considering, does this align with the theory of orthographic mapping? Am I about to do something with this emergent reader that strengthens the bonds between the spelling and pronunciation of the word, as well as the meaning? If I didn't mention that, I apologize. Also, the meaning is a part of that amalgam that Ari refers to. It's the spelling to pronunciation is the glue, and then meaning also supports that amalgam. To go back to that, I look at the instructional approach, especially in kindergarten and first grade 
because that is the moment when you're really trying to lift off into reading words. And the way you're going to do that is to get words securely stored in memory. You don't do that by just looking at words and trying to memorize them. You do that by strengthening the glue between the spelling and the pronunciation of the word, as well as using the word and knowing either the semantic or syntactical use of the word. That's a pretty complicated theory for a lot of people to take in. And so I really feel like your research has tried to bridge the gap between what the very technical cognitive psychology science of reading and practice. I've tried. I've tried and I've been so lucky to have the opportunity to try to do what I can because I was a practitioner and I was a really frustrated practitioner who is teaching children how to read. I don't know if I mentioned this part of my history where I was a reading specialist or learning specialist. So after teaching, I should mention that in my introduction, after teaching third grade, I started working on my master's in educational psychology. And at the same time, I transitioned into the role, a role of being a reading specialist. They referred to us as learning specialists in that part of the country. I worked almost solely with students who were brought into my caseload for some kind of reading delay. And some of the students had a reading disability, but many of them just were curriculum casualties. They did not receive the type of instruction they needed. And once we were able to work with those students and remediate through an explicit and systematic way, I know those are buzz terms now, but I think strong reading instructors have always been doing explicit and systematic instruction because if you're a reading specialist, you know that that's what works. When I learned about the field of reading science, which again, at the time, I didn't know it was called the field of reading science. I was just when followed, you know, Dr. Airy and into her work and through learning about her theory of orthographic mapping and her phase theory, I was able to connect it to my practitioner work and found some ways that we could really ground it in instructional approaches and hopefully improve instructional approaches. I love it. You worked with a program called Reading Rescue in New York City. What can you tell us about it and how could it inform practice for people outside of New York? Sure. So Reading Rescue was developed by Dr. Nora Lee Hoover, who is a professor at the University of Florida. And Dr. Hoover, uh, as the story goes, Dr. Hoover wrote the program in response to reading recovery. Nora told me that she actually went up to Marie Clay after a talk that she had given and said, you know what, I could do this better because you're not doing, you don't have enough phonics instruction built into your program. And as the story goes, I I guess Marie Clay said, well, then go ahead and, you know, do what you want. And so Nora developed Reading Rescue. And what she did is she was extremely thoughtful in how she interwove the five pillars of literacy uh, from the National Reading Panel Um, Well, I should say it was developed prior to the National Reading Panel, but the program addresses all of the five pillars. And after the report came out, Nora looked at the program and, you know, further built out parts of the program. And then when Nora retired, she brought me on as the academic advisor through the Benedict Silverman Foundation, which owns the program. And they have uh, allowed me to strengthen the phonics component of the program And so I've rewritten part of of the scope and sequence. I've strengthened uh, the activities 
that we do. I've created more support so that it's the phonics parts of the lesson are as explicit and systematic as they can be. And I've also been able to bring my research on high frequency words into the program. And so we deal with high frequency words the same way you deal with all words in the program. And so it's been a wonderful opportunity for me to both develop the program and research the program. So this is an evidence-based program. You can find uh, links to the evidence on the proventutoring.org website. I've conducted research on it. My mentor, as I mentioned, uh, Dr. Airy conducted research on it. There was also research out of the University of Indiana on it. So is this program available to people outside of New York? The Benedict Silverman Foundation is working right now through Proven Tutoring on bringing the program to other parts of the country. We've had great success with the program in New York City. And I should mention, this is a program for first and second graders, striving first and second graders. And based on the success we've had here, I am working with the Benedict Silverman Foundation to bring it to other parts of the country. We have different models that you can use. That's interesting. And so I will definitely link that when we put out the podcast, because immediately what comes to mind is I want that. And how do I get that? And so I like to, to try to bridge that gap for people. So in addition to that, you actually wrote a new program called Reading Ready, which is the precursor to Reading Rescue. How did this come about? And why is it important for helping students? Sure. So I wrote Reading Ready because we've always had students who were selected for Reading Rescue by their school. So the school acknowledges that that the child is a striving reader and needs additional support, and they need a one-on-one evidence-based approach. But this child is actually not yet ready to be successful in Reading Rescue, They don't have enough foundational skills to even enter into that program. And that always seriously broke my heart when we were, when we turned any child away from a program called Reading Rescue. So I wrote Reading Ready and Reading Ready is all about foundational word attack skills. I wrote it uh, with kindergartners in mind, actually, where if I wanted to do preventative work in kindergarten, What would I do with a child in kindergarten in order to ensure they have a strong foundation of word analysis skills? Uh, Side note, I have a kindergartner right now who's learning how to read. So this is all very aligned to my home life as well. So I wrote this program to ensure that those children have strong letter knowledge, strong phonemic awareness skills, strong word analysis skills. I do word mapping and word chains. And then I wrote decodable sentences. So the decodable sentences only have the letter sounds that they were working on in that lesson, the phonemic awareness letter sounds that they were working on, other than the compound words that I do. Um, They are only reading words that they've already done this really heavy word analysis, word mapping and word chains work on. And then when they go to read that sentence, their confidence is there. They have the skills they've heard, they've seen, they've analyzed those words. So now they're ready to read that sentence. That sounds awesome. And I love the fact that, you know, when it wasn't working with Reading Rescue, you just developed the solution. I did. I, we, need, we needed something and the Benedict Silverman Foundation was very supportive in saying, yes, we're ready for this precursor program 
they're very mission oriented. They want to help all students. And they also couldn't bear the fact that students were being turned away. One thing we found in the pandemic was that so many first graders and second graders need reading ready. So reading rescue and reading ready uh, through my work at CUNY City University of New York were chosen as the summer rising interventions for the New York City Department of Education. And my colleague, Andrew Fletcher, who's the Senior Executive Director of Literacy at the DOE, we were shocked at how many first and second graders were slotted to have reading rescue, but actually needed reading ready. And that's, I think that says a lot about the COVID slide. And uh, we're lucky to have been, been able to give the students what they need. I also want to say, Shelley, that I'm never, I don't want anyone buying anything. Reading Ready is free. So I've put all of the, the materials are for free. They're up on the website, which I will link here. You'll find a curriculum for educators. It's very simple to follow. I can train people in three hours or as an educator, you could probably read it and figure it out on your own. I have a caregiver guide. So that's for parents who want to do some of this work at home. It's a very simple, like 20-page guide for them to do some of this work. We have a data tracker, so you can document the sessions that you've done with the students you're working with. We have all kinds of support videos. We have additional letter practice. We have an additional letter name, letter sound document that has 50 activities for you to use if you'd like to further strengthen students' letter sound skills. So, and I, I know I said that this was preventative. I wrote this with preventative kindergarten work in mind, but as I've said, so many first and second graders are actually the ones receiving this program. Well, that sounds great. And the free part appeals to probably a lot of people because what I find is teachers realize my child or my students need something else. And so they go out and buy something and it's not the quality or even what children need. And so I am so excited that you have worked not only to develop this great resource, but that it's free for people. I'm so glad I was able to to write this and provide it too. I I wanted something that was comprehensive enough to address word analysis, word attack skills in these very emergent moments where lots of assumptions are made that if students have letter knowledge and if they have some phoneme segmentation skills, the child will bring these two uh, foundational skills together to jump into word reading, but actually they need a lot of explicit, systematic, repetitive work in order to build that bridge for themselves. That, and that's really what I was able to do here. It's great work. You've worked to train pre-service teachers in these programs. What can you tell us about this work and why is it so important? Yes. So when COVID hit, you know, in New York City, all of our schools were closed as they were across the country. So in the fall of 2020, when I was going, coming upon another semester and we were remote as a university and the schools were shut, I said, we have an opportunity here to improve teacher education and support students in dire need of literacy instruction. And so I required that all of the students enrolled in my grad and undergrad literacy courses at the university be trained in reading rescue. And then we paired them with a department of ed student in need as their field work. And so the pre-service teachers were getting incredible training and an evidence-based 
reading science aligned program. And then the students were getting what they need because there was an execution of these skills. This, the pre-service teachers weren't just trained. They actually had to go out and execute on it. We had incredible results. And over a year, we, we served almost 600 uh, students in need across New York City through the university work, just through the university work. Reading Rescue is also used in schools across the Department of Education, aside from my work at the university. So I feel really strongly that, and I know it's a big buzz in the field right now, that universities have to take some responsibility for the gap in teacher education around how to teach a child how to read, around teachers' knowledge of the science of reading. I do my best at the university to teach about the science of reading, but there's nothing like teaching a child how to read using reading science aligned instructional approaches. This is where you go from, as a researcher, I deal with the science of reading, but as a recent article in the Reading League says, it's about the science of teaching reading. So you can't just have the science of reading, you have to have the science of teaching reading. And that is where practitioners, it's everything. If, if we're not giving it to the teachers, if we're not training pre-service teachers, we are never going to solve this problem. You, you can work with in-service teachers, and I know we all are, Shelley, I know you do a lot of work with that too. I'm committed now to that my in-service teachers so that I'm not perpetuating a problem. Yeah, because it's going to take both to really bridge that gap to where we need to be. Absolutely. So you're currently involved in writing grants for these programs. What role do philanthropic organizations have in your work? And could this be replicated in other places? Absolutely. The philanthropic organizations have been everything to this work. So I was able to do this work at the university through the generous support of the Heckscher Foundation for Young Children, I mentioned the Benedict Silverman Foundation. There was an anonymous family foundation that came to the table, the Tiger Foundation, Altman Foundation, the Robin Hood um, has come and supported our work. These philanthropic organizations are mission-oriented, mission-aligned, to providing striving readers with the support that they need. And by using an evidence-based program and by working with pre-service teachers, I feel like everyone's mission was met and they have been incredibly generous. They really see the value in using evidence-based approaches and working with teachers before they're in the field, working with university students before they're in the field. I like it. So I wonder if there are any other foundations out there that could potentially do this also. Absolutely. I know that there are. I've talked to some of these foundations. I know that this can be replicated in other parts of the country. Right now, the Benedict Silverman Foundation, we just recently partnered with American University to do something similar like we're doing at CUNY. And there are foundations in D.C. that are interested in that work. And I know you all are in Alabama, and I would be happy to support this, or I could guide you. I know there are philanthropic organizations that if you told them about what you'd like to do with using evidence-based programs to meet the needs of both pre-service teachers and students who are in desperate need of one-on-one -on -one support, I, I know that they would come to the table. What I love about this approach is that it provides students in the public schools with a tutor. For many of these students, I know with Reading Rescue and Reading Ready, we work with the most underserved communities around New York City. And those families do not have the ability to provide, or oftentimes they don't have the ability to finance a tutor 
But we know that families of means, especially when the pandemic hit, the, the, the tutoring business was robust for many individuals around New York. This gives us an opportunity to provide these students with a one-on-one tutor. And that's really what's going to make all the difference. If a one-on-one tutor is using an evidence-based program, we can make uh, students great support. And this is the type of the support that the schools need right now, too. I can't believe what teachers are dealing with in schools right now with regards to the variability in their students' skills that as they are coming into their kindergarten, first and second grade classroom, based on exactly what I just spoke about with some students getting what they needed and other students not uh, being provided with the type of support that was necessary. Well, that's a perfect segue to my next question, which really deals with the students who've missed out on foundational learning in the early grades, and they get to the either upper elementary grades or even beyond. What are some ways to help these students that teachers could do within their regular classroom instruction and day? One of the most basic things that I recommend to teachers in upper elementary is when you say a word, if you're introducing a new word, say the word, count the sounds you hear in the word, count the letters in the word and match the letters to the sounds. It's as simple as that. If you go through those three steps, you say the word, count the sounds, match the sounds to the letters. It anchors students in the idea that there is actually a system in our English language that we can look for patterns in these words that we know. We can break down words. We can analyze words. There are supports within that word in order to strengthen the storage of that word in memory. And really what we need to do in these upper elementary grades is ensure that these students have strong mental orthographic images of those words. You do that through doing some kind of simple in the moment word analysis when you can, and then providing more in-depth word analysis work at other points in time. I love that because a lot of times we have those kids sitting in our classrooms. I was a high school English teacher and had kids that were reading on third grade reading level, and I was supposed to be teaching Shakespeare, and I really had no idea how to help them in any way. So that is a really simple technique that anybody could use, and it doesn't cost them anything. That's right. That's right. I have a grad student right now. We're running a project. She's in, she's in elementary school, but she's just going to do those three things all year long because she has so, students like you just have so much, again, variability and skill, and she needs something that covers the whole gamut. And so she's, I'm going to do these three things every day, a few times a day, and I'm going to see if this actually can support my emergent readers in a way that I otherwise wouldn't be able to stop the curriculum and switch over to a different program in that moment or throughout the day. Right. And it just takes a few minutes and it doesn't require students leaving your classroom or another person. And so I love that. I think I'm going to try to find somebody to to try that here in Alabama. So Katie, thank you so much for being with me today. I appreciate so much what you're doing for children and teachers and our families and our profession. And you're just making such a difference. Shelly, thanks so much. I really appreciate the platform that you've created to help researchers and other people doing great work to be able to talk about it. Thank you so much for the opportunity.
Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Join us again for the next episode of the Alabama Literacy Network's podcast.